Hello and welcome back to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And that's right. Welcome back. If you're listening to this episode first, please do go back to episode 20 as this is part two of a two-part week. I can't think of how to say it, Mark. Part two Two-part two episode. Parts. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's hard to imagine the emotions of surviving the Southern Rail crash or losing someone in it and then reading about another crash on a line not far from where it happened just two years later. At six minutes past eight in the morning of the 5th of October 1999, a Thames train service from Paddington to Bedwin was leaving Paddington Station. It was a class 165 with three cars driven by Michael Hodder and on board were 147 people. Also on a journey that morning was the 603 First Great Western train from Cheltenham heading into Paddington and this was an HST driven by Brian Cooper carrying 421 passengers. So if you you may recall from episode part one the types of trains and the names of the trains quite often have the speeds involved as well and so the class 165 was a much smaller train that's a more um, rural train a more local one similar to the one you said you were one, I imagine it would be a, if not the same type of train. And then the HST is the high speed train. And that's the much bigger, many more carriages train. The majority of the time with train lines, there are two separate lines. There's the up line and the down line. So one in each direction. But from the Ladbroke Grove Junction, two miles after Paddington, on the way to South Wales and the west of England, it's this conventional setup, but between Paddington and Ladbroke Grove, there is this different layout. So for this small two-mile section, the lines are bi-directional. This means they are signalled to allow trains to travel in either direction in and out of the platforms of Paddington Station. As the train coming into Paddington was the arriving train, this meant it had priority, and the outbound train was signalled to stop with a red signal at Portobello Junction until it can continue safely. And so um, maybe kind of obviously, but you've got the slower trains coming out and there's more chance to ensure that they're stopping and they're kind of the ones that have just left the station. So that's why they don't have the priority. The trains coming in have priority. So the train driver had been given a single yellow signal first. This was followed by a red, but neither signal was adhered to. So we discussed the AWS system before and this was working on the Thames train. At green signals, it would have sounded a bell, which was a reminder that all was okay. And at the yellow and red signals, it would have sounded a horn noise. And the reporting software confirmed later that this horn was responded to by being cancelled by the driver. So unlike in part one, the AWS system was working. This train didn't have ATP, so this was the only system on there. Instead of stopping, the Thames train passed the red signal and the points directed it onto the up main line at Ladbroke Grove. At about 8.09, as it was entering the up line, the first Great Western HST was coming in the opposite direction. Signalers noticed this, and they attempted to set the HST signals to red. However, when this was changed, the train was around 220 metres from the signal and doing about 100 miles an hour. Whether it was due to the sudden red signal, or perhaps the sight of a train coming towards his HST, Driver Brian Cooper hit the brakes and Michael Hodder also applied the brakes to his train at about the point where he would have seen the other train up ahead. Despite both drivers braking, the trains collided nearly head on at a combined speed of approximately 130 miles an hour. 
it's been suggested that the drivers would have actually been able to see each other as the collision unfolded. And I imagine that time both stood still, but also raced, and they both frantically tried to brake to avoid this inevitable impact. That's just, yeah, that's such a horrible thing to visualise, that they're driving literally right towards each other head on, and we'll see the whites in each other's eyes and the panic. The crash was devastating. Carriages were ripped apart. The front locomotive of the HST rose up into the air, described by a witness as almost like an aeroplane taking off. Carriages were thrown onto their sides. Passengers on the Thames train described the scene after impact, and one said the carriage was completely devastated. The floor had come up, the seats and debris and metal were all over the place. A few pockets of flame around the carriage and the right-hand side of the carriage, so the left-hand side when facing the direction of travel, was completely gone. It was just completely missing. Another passenger had been sitting on the rear right-hand side of the car, and after the crash he could not move because he was trapped in the wreckage with fires burning around his legs. Fortunately, two or three people helped pull him free of the wreckage and the fires onto the side of the track and he suffered severe burns, but he was able to survive. And a number of passengers were trapped in the crushed front end of the middle car and they remained there until they were released by the fire brigade. One of those trapped gave moving testimony to the investigation saying how she was thrown out of her seat on impact. She landed on the floor on her back and her legs were elevated in the air, trapped in twisted metal glass and foam above her. She was covered in shattered glass and over the next four hours, the firemen and paramedics reassured her, provided medical assistance and the firemen carefully removed the debris from around her in order to free her. And this was a really hazardous situation because the wreckage was just so precariously balanced. A passenger on the HST later wrote about how there was no warning, just a huge bang as they crashed. He said he felt the impact through my seat as well as hearing it. For a moment or two, it seemed that we might be all right because the train continued on its way. But then we derailed and the wheels started to plough over the sleepers and through the ballast beside the tracks. Either at the moment of, or at least within seconds after the collision, there was a rapid, turbulent combustion, described by eyewitnesses as a fireball, which rose into the air and travelled along the HST. This was followed by the presence of substantial quantities of thick black smoke. Many passengers on the HST described travelling through a ball of fire that went along the outside length of the train from front to back, And one said later in the inquiry report, I turned my head to the right and I saw a fireball. At this point, I was still bracing myself in my seat. I tried to curl up when I saw the fireball coming and I don't recall screaming, but I might have done because I managed to burn the inside of my mouth and throat. I remember the fire hitting me. It got incredibly hot and I could hear my hair crackling. There was also a noise like gas igniting. It then went quiet. A video recording by a camera located in the car park of a supermarket to the north of the crash site showed that the fireball covered a horizontal distance of about 70 metres. A passenger described how he had been travelling towards the rear of the HST and managed to get out reasonably easily, seeing the crash of his train and the Thames train up ahead and the fires burning. He helped strangers by putting out the fires on their clothing, by patting, grabbing fire extinguishers to try and fight the blaze and even dragging other passengers away from and out of fires. Coach H of the HST was the carriage immediately behind the diesel locomotive and it was the front passenger carriage and this carriage suffered the worst damage. Three men who were standing at the front of the coach died when they were propelled into the back of the locomotive and two more who were sitting in window seats at the very front of the coach were thrown out and died. 
and a sixth passenger who hit her head and sustained injuries that were probably fatal remained inside the carriage after it caught fire. Her body was found days later by the emergency services. Coaches F and G ended up at about 70 and 90 degree angles, respectively from the vertical. And yeah, I just, you just can't, it's so hard to even imagine, isn't it? Just the absolute carnage. These two trains just hitting head on. Yeah, I mean, 130 miles an hour head on, all those carriages behind them. I know there's only three carriages on the smaller train, but the high speed train there's 400 odd passengers on board so yeah loads and loads of carriages and it is just going to almost jackknife isn't it so when somebody talks about it looking like one of the carriages was a plane about to take off you can imagine that position that it would be in and I think the only time the only way that you can sort of go beyond the imagination is is from obviously news reports that we've seen but the only other way is from horror uh, not horror films but disaster movies that we've all seen where there's a train crash that that is exactly how it would have looked yeah it was um it was the front of the hst that rose up into the air and you just think that is the most Un, you know, it's a, it's a not a natural thing. It's a train, no. but it's the most unnatural position for a train to be in, for it to be rising up in and in, in that manner. Yeah, and I, I I keep thinking about how the description of it is that those those train drivers would have been able to see each other, both frantically braking, and that just keeps on kind of coming back to me. It's haunting. It's absolutely haunting mm. to. Be it for the for the drivers to be able to see the face of somebody else who is going through the exact same thing at that moment. Yeah. Immediately after the crash, the senior conductor on the HST made an announcement over the public address system, asking passengers to remain calm and appealing for the assistance of persons who had medical training or were firefighters, service personnel, or railway staff. He also advised passengers to remain where they were until they were advised that it was safe for them to leave the train. And he said that passengers should make their way to the rear of the train. So just a note here, according to the codes of practice, competence and training of personnel in dealing with train emergencies and evacuation procedures. In most cases, it is actually safer for passengers to remain on the train. And the general good sense of this statement is kind of obvious. If you get off the train, you've got the external factors as well. Um, immediately following an accident in, at Maidenhead in 1995, a passenger was killed because he jumped out and was struck by a passing train. So getting everybody to stay on the train was the right thing. And the code also states that a complete evacuation of a train should only be undertaken as a last resort if absolutely necessary. It's quite interesting to to think of that. It makes sense, like you say, because there's so much danger on train tracks that that they would say that and Mm. that evacuating a train would need to be a really orchestrated, organised thing. You couldn't just kind of have people walking and wandering all over the place, dazed and in shock. Yeah. But then you have got that added concern of, for example, a fireball, as happened in this case, just travelling 70 metres through the the carriages. And if you're staying on on board, it's like, is that going to happen? Is that going to come for me? Exactly. And... Keeping everybody on the train means everyone's contained, which is absolutely right. And and then you haven't got someone wandering onto a track or, you know, an overhead cable falls down on top of somebody or electrocutes somebody. But you all still are sat there in the in the carriages still. 
The conductor promptly used his mobile phone to call the emergency services manager of First Great Western to inform him of the location of the crash and to request the protection of the lines, cutting off the electricity supply to the overhead lines and and kind of just letting them know. But he hadn't quite grasped just how serious the crash had been at first because he was kind of further back and he he didn't really realise He had first of all attempted to call through to the driver but had no answer and so he began to walk up the train. But after a short while he realised that a a full-on disaster had happened. He was delayed by requests for assistance to deal with the injured and as he was going along people were asking and I guess he must have thought it was, you know, in speech marks, just a crash that you know, these people have fallen out of their chairs, he didn't quite realise. And then as he got further and further up the train, he realised just how bad this was. It's like a double shock, isn't it? Because he's got that initial shock of, oh God, you know, we have actually had a collision. I think it's okay. There's not really going to be any serious injuries here, but this is going to be a ball ache to fix and to sort out. And then as, yeah, as he's wandering through the carriages, he's like, Jesus Christ, this is, this is a proper disaster. And according to the later investigation, he became progressively overwhelmed by the magnitude of what was happening around him. And he realised that the protection of the passengers was almost an impossible task for him. And he had also himself suffered a concussion. Given the death of the driver, he was technically in charge of not only the safety of the passengers, but also the train. And at this point, he was the only surviving member of the train crew who had had any training in emergency evacuation procedures, which is, you just think, gosh, you you're the conductor, you are trained for all this, but I don't think you'd ever expect to find yourself needing to to draw on that training. And to have it all on resting on your shoulders, and then I don't know if he knows at this point that the driver has died, but these are colleagues and possibly friends, people that yeah. this guy has worked with maybe for many years, and you're trying to sort of put that to the back of your mind really to focus on the immediate problem of getting these passengers off safely but Mm -hmm. yeah it just must with concussion as well just it is just way too much for the brain to process and to deal with isn't it and it's incredible that he still did that he still led that train and those passengers amazing So the other train, the Thames train, that was equipped with an address system which enabled the driver to give messages and advice to the passengers. However, the driver was the sole train employee who was routinely on board and the radio link had not been opened up for the signalman to address the passengers, so no announcements were made to the passengers on this train. Two Thames trains employees were travelling in the rear driver's cab, so one phoned rail track at Slough to ensure that the steps were taken to protect the train and they unlocked the door which gave access from the rear car to the cab this was not an emergency exit it was normally kept locked so it wasn't an an easy thing but they then assisted numerous passengers to get down from the train through there an emergency call was made at 8 10 a.m and crews from north kensington fire station arrived minutes later although crews initially faced difficulty in gaining access to the accident site because of a delay in opening a security gate so i thought this was incredible of how amazing they are five of the firefighters scaled the gate using their ladders to be able to start laying down their hoses to extinguish the fire but it's something you don't really think about because when there's a uh... When there's a crash on the motorway, it's probably easier to get emergency response to the scene. Whereas when it's a um, a train track, it could be in the middle of nowhere, couldn't it? With no roads sort of leading to that or nearby. Mm -hmm. 
And you might be able to get helicopters there, but if you're talking about hundreds of casualties, potentially, that's not really going to work. So, yeah, it's hard. It's a hard thing to actually get onto the track and to get all the equipment that you need there and all of the personnel that you need there. It's just another logistical yeah. issue when you compare it to something like uh, a, an accident on the motorway. Mm-hmm. And of course, these gates need to be locked. You can't just have random people wandering onto the train tracks. They need to be protected. Yeah. But that then, if if it's a struggle then to find the right person with the right keys because everyone's panicking, you're then delaying the emergency services themselves. One of the firemen reportedly saw a large mushroom cloud of smoke rising 150 to 200 metres into the air and further fire engines were requested at 8.15. Passengers got out of the carriages if they were able, out into the bright sunlight. They were shocked and in daze. They were worried about the flames of the fires around them. And a witness described how he saw burned and blackened figures walking up and down the embankment. He also described seeing two women who just held each other and sobbed, their bodies shaking from top to toe. And another woman who was limping because she was only wearing one shoe. After a few minutes, the fire on Coach H took hold and soon there was a vast column of black smoke rising hundreds of feet into the air from the coach. The investigation found that there was no fault in the system which impeded the escape of passengers from the HST. However, there was a lot of evidence that passengers felt they had a lack of information of how to get out of a train in an emergency. It's not like on a plane where we get a safety demonstration before each flight and this has really made me think about this, that I need to pay more attention to how, if anything was to happen, like looking at evacuation procedures and where do I find the hammer to break the glass or whatever the, the situation is. And also, um, I think your instinct is to want to get off the train. So if it does crash, you might see the hammer, smash the window or the window's already broken and want to get out. But do, do you know whether you'd be able to tread onto the tracks and not get electrocuted i don't know whether they're uh live or not or whether they'll have been turned off or or not mm -hmm. so yeah who knows what what you're supposed to do and um quite often in these sorts of cases you see about i think it was in part one when we talked about how the the roof was then the side and the windows were then the roof or the windows were the base and depending if there's if you're able to you may be able to climb up but then you've got to try and slide down potentially three or four meters from what is the roof of a train onto gravel or a concrete or or, or de yeah. debris twisted debris. metal you and things that are going to stab exactly. you yeah passengers didn't know about the location and the use of the emergency release handle on the doors and many didn't realize that on the hst even after the emergency release handle had been operated the external door handle still also had to be operated for the door to open so quite often people would go and try the door they would think that there was a fault and then move along to the next door rather than evacuating um everybody you know people evacuating from all the points a lot of people were kind of crowding up to the end because they thought that the doors weren't opening for them passengers later complained about the relative narrowness of the doors so in the sense that only one passenger could disembark from the train at a time and the difficulty which they experienced in getting down from the train with no ladder or equipment however on that i would say that it's probably better to have one person at a time in my opinion i'm not a safety expert but um surely a few people trying to cram out of the door at once could involve people falling so that's but you're worried about fire so i appreciate you're not going to want to stand there waiting 
A number of passengers also gave evidence that they didn't know where to find a hammer with which to break a window or how a hammer should be used for the purposes and instructions appear to be overlooked, probably because of the smoke from fires, the stress of the situation. But you have to use the hammer in a certain point of the window and people were trying to smash the middle of the window rather than the corner. Um, There were a number of hammers that hadn't even been removed from the holder. People had just gone past them. So there was a, a real lack of of anybody really knowing what they were supposed to do. As the fire brigade worked to put out the fires and to attempt to rescue people from the wreckage, the police arrived and started to take charge and an officer directed the uninjured and the walking wounded to a nearby school. Paramedics attended to the wounded, bathing their burns, providing oxygen masks and bandaging their injuries. And one firefighter described the scene saying... One thing that stuck in my mind was the ringing of mobile phones which were lost around the site by passengers. They rang throughout the day. I looked at one and it had 104 missed calls. The final casualty I helped with was actually trapped under the carriage as they had fallen through the windows of the train and the train had landed on top of them. I always remember the from other train crashes as you get towards the late 90s and then the noughties and pretty much everybody's got a mobile phone by that point I've heard similar testimony before of people that have attended train crash sites to you know in in their capacity as emergency service responders or whatever and there is they've said there is absolute silence apart from the repeated ringing of you know hundreds of mobile phones and I think that just really hammers home that sense of panic for the friends, family, loved ones of those who are on that, those trains, worried about them. And there are 104 missed calls on that one person's yeah. phone of panicked relatives, multiple people making multiple calls, mm-hmm. trying to get through. And yeah, just knowing just deep not. down that, that something bad's probably and happened here. You just really want to hope that that 104 missed calls that person's left their phone because it got thrown and they've made an escape and you just really pray that that's the case. Which it could be. Yeah. This was a delicate operation. Overhead power lines, the wreckage and glass meant extractions of trapped passengers took a really long time and the rescue operation and subsequent searches actually lasted until the 14th of October with rescue efforts severely hampered by the delicate state of some of the wreckage. 31 people died as a result of the crash. So 24 were on that Thames train turbo and seven who were on the HST. 422 people had been travelling on the high-speed train, including the driver, Brian Cooper. And Brian Cooper was killed instantly by the impact. His body was thrown from the power car and later found. And the first passenger carriage, Coach H, contained 36 passengers, six of whom were killed. All of the remaining 30 passengers in that coach suffered injuries and some of them being really serious burns. Passengers in every carriage from Coach G backwards to Coach A were un- were injured as well. There was no carriage where people were not injured. In the Thames train, 148 people were travelling, including the driver, Michael Hodder. In the front car of the train, there were 25 passengers and the driver. Michael Hodder and 19 of those 25 passengers were killed. In the middle car, there were 60 passengers, of whom three were killed. And in the re- rear car there were 62 passengers one of whom was killed of the surviving passengers all but four of them had sustained injuries and those who lost their lives were in alphabetical order charlotte anderson derek antonowitz anthony beaton ola bratley roger brown jennifer carmichael 
Brian Cooper, Robert Cotton, Sam DiLieto, Sean Donoghue, Neil Dowse, Cyril Elliott, Fiona Gray, Juliet Groves, Sun Yoon Ha, Michael Hodder, Elaine Kalau, Martin King, Antonio Lacavara, Razak Ladipo, Matthew McCauley, Dalroy Manning, John Northcott, John Raisin, David Roberts, Alan Stewart, Kawa Tuid, Muthulingam Thayaparan, Andrew Thompson, Brian Thompson and Simon Wood. So what caused this crash? The driver, Michael Hodder, had died in the crash, so of course there was no way to ask him or investigate in that way. There were eyewitness reports and reports from the train that showed he had not slowed at the signals. But why? The answer seems to be that there were quite a few elements to this, but it's, it's really frustratingly simple. So firstly, Michael Hodder was really inexperienced. He had qualified as a driver only two weeks prior to the crash. The training that he had received had not been as comprehensive as it should have been. And one of the elements missed that we will look at in more detail really did relate to this specific section of track. And also the signals were just not as visible as they should have been. And the weather played a big part in the crash as well. So Hodder had not had any driver training relating to two key elements, which were assessing situation handling skills and being notified of recent local incidences of signals passed at danger, otherwise known as SPAD. So SPAD is a really key part to this case, and you may recall that from the first part of this episode. So this is where drivers have missed signals and whether or not there is a danger caused by this. The local signals were known to have caused other near misses. SN109 had been passed at danger on eight occasions in six years. So this signal was clearly an issue to others, not just a hodder. And I find that really crazy, um, eight occasions in six years. I just think that is far too high of a statistic. Yeah, because they're all near misses, aren't they? So just fortunate, dumb luck that that hadn't resulted in what's happened here. Yeah, yeah. it's continued to, you know, they've not done any remedial action to those signals to make them more obvious. Mm-hmm. So there was a SPAD incident on the 2nd of August 1993 where an intercity Great Western train was driven by driver Palmer. He was a conductor driver for the Paddington remodelling and he was driving the train through the recently laid track. The normal booked driver of the train was sitting beside him in the cab and the train overran the signal by six feet. So the same signal that um, Hodder had missed. Driver Palmer had eight years and 10 months of driving experience. He drove that route and that type of train daily. So whereas Hodder had two weeks of experience of driving trains, this was a a well-established train driver. And in answer to one of the questions in the form, he indicated that SN109 was usually clear the incident was categorised as misjudge and the misjudge train behaviour box was ticked. In the section for additional comments on the form, it was stated, Driver Palmer, though accepting responsibility for the misjudgment, also remarked about the poor positioning not only of this signal but of many others in the remodelling scheme. He accepted this is no excuse and, as stated, accepts responsibility and Driver Palmer was given a verbal caution. But I think this is really, really interesting because this was 1993 And this was recently redone tracks, recently remodelled. And this driver knows this area really well. And he's saying that there is poor positioning of this signal and many others in the remodelling scheme. It's hard to see them. 
And he's not just using that as a, an excuse for what happened, because he is absolutely accepting responsibility when he shouldn't really have to. But he's saying, no, you know, I completely accept it's my fault, but I do also want to mention that there is an issue with this. So it's not like just he's using it as a scapegoat. He, he is saying there is genuinely a problem with this. Yeah, this was clearly a big issue. But Hodder wasn't told to take care at that one. No one told this brand new driver that this was a dangerous point of his route. When Hodder set off from Platform 9 on the morning of the 5th of October 1999, he was driving a route that was known to be very difficult for train drivers. He had accelerated through SN109 and continued driving for 700 metres, unaware of what he'd done. Yes, he was inexperienced, but he wasn't stupid. This was an intelligent and level-headed man. So either he had not seen SM109 at all, or he must have really thought that that signal allowed him to proceed. The 5th of October 1999 was a clear day and at just past 8 o'clock in the morning the sun would have been low, behind Hodder, so the sun was reflecting off all yellow aspects, reducing visibility, and a witness who was on the train later said all my memories of the crash were drenched in the bright sunlight of that morning. It was a cloudless day, the sun would have shone directly onto the east-facing signals that controlled Hodder's journey out of London. So anyone who's driven a car or ridden a motorbike or been in control of any vehicle you know the you know you'll have experienced the effect that sunlight can have on traffic lights making it really difficult and almost impossible to properly appreciate the color that's actually illuminated sometimes if the sun's the other way you can be fully blinded and the driver of a previous west brown train that day reported that all the signals right away across lit up like a christmas tree and that was at 7:50 that morning So these were really, really being hit by the bright light. And that time of year, that sort of as you're coming into autumn, the sun, it's when it's low, it can still it can just be so strong and so powerful. So like you say, whether it's in front of you, which wasn't the case here, that's absolutely blinding. But if it's behind you and it's reflecting and bouncing off any kind of glass or anything like that, then that is going to distort the colours of a signal box, isn't it? Yeah. And local spacing between signals and points was designed in a specific way to allow fast-moving trains to kind of go through. But because of this, the gantry was less than 100 metres from a road bridge. That signal wasn't visible from far away. You could only see those signals as you came up at them. So you've got a second to look at it to see it. Yeah. And if you've been warned, you're going to be really wanting to pay attention. You may even slow down a little bit. But if you haven't even been warned about it, you're not going to know what you what you don't know. But would the AWS have gone off? So that that uh, we will get noise. Onto that. Okay, yeah, we will get onto that definitely. Um, so you know, I said there were eight um, SPAD spads previously. So I talked about that first one. The driver responsible for the previous um spad on this particular track and this particular um signal was a driver called driver often so this was literally the the last one before hodder's fatal crash and he said in his written statement that the problem with sn109 and the other signals on the same gantry is that they are not visible for very long on approach particularly at the high line speeds that are in place This means that they do not register in a driver's mind in the same way that a signal of which a driver has a clear continuous sight for appreciable time and distance on approach. And driver often actually had 37 years experience. He had not had a SPAD in the previous 10 years. He drove that route approximately once every fortnight. So again, this isn't someone trying to 
get away with something that they've done or or who doesn't know what they're talking about he isn't trying to make an excuse but he's really trying to explain the problem with this signal yeah i mean if you if all if there was a pattern emerging through these eight previous spads of well in all bar one or two of them it's a relatively inexperienced driver you might be able to point towards a lack of experience but when you've got really experienced drivers and what they're saying is making total sense then you have to it has to register you have to accept that there is a problem with this signal and he has hit the na- the nail on the head because the problem is you it's not going to register it's like a subliminal message it's just blinking at you for part of a second and then it's gone so the brain just isn't having chance to process that the signal is there and what it was because you're seeing it for part of a second rather than 10 seconds as you gradually approach it and it becomes clearer and clearer and i think as well what's really frustrating is you know you mentioned before about the aws systems that advanced warning system um you get a ding every time you go through green you then get a horn that should alert the driver and should be something that then makes the driver think, oh, this isn't quite right. Perhaps that's what actually happened with some of these previous spads where the, the drivers are actually really experienced. So they hear that and they think, hang on a second, I didn't see anything. They slam on their brakes. They know that something's happened. They know that this is a risky bit of track. So they're more likely to respond and not have an accident, you know, not have a, an actual incident occur from it obviously they're still going to get written up and and this is taken very seriously by the train line companies of course but driver hodder is a new driver doesn't know the track very well and when he heard that horn he may have thought to himself oh that was that's something that i i don't need to pay attention to maybe he thought that it was something else maybe he heard the horn and then thought oh maybe i'm coming up to a yellow next we don't know what he was thinking but perhaps that's where this AWS, which is supposed to really, if he hasn't been taught about signals passed at danger, why does he know the risk of not following what the AWS tells him to do? Another element to the cause of this crash was that the train line had been electrified in the early 90s to allow the Heathrow Express service to operate, but this meant the addition of overhead electrification equipment that further obstructed drivers' views of signals. So train drivers had previously described how they had to pick out the signal that governed the passage of their train through a maze of overhead electrical equipment saying it was like spaghetti. And Hodder's train was fitted with AWS at that warning system, but it didn't have ATP fitted which would have automatically applied the brakes. And and it's kind of like you said, with, with AWS, it's it's doing a ding when it's green and a horn when it's amber or yellow and then a double yellow, the same. But in the same way that sometimes you things that you that are visual don't register, audible things don't register sometimes as well. So that sound could have played and just literally gone in one ear and out the other through no yeah. one's fault just it's just not registered for whatever reason because the driver is concentrating on something else for example yeah he's a new driver he's got so much to think about and i'm in no way excusing that because he's that's the whole point you you're supposed to pay attention to everything you're supposed to have your ears and eyes on everything and especially when you're new that's almost I I don't know, like, is it more important to do that when you're new because you're completely new and your training should be fresh in your mind? Or actually, when you're older, you're going to get complacent because you've been doing it for longer? I don't know. But it's clearly been missed here. But the ATP would have stopped that. And um, that was, you know, that's one of the things that's come out of both of these crashes in such a short space of time on the same track 
is the use of these systems that need needed to be implemented and are implemented on trains now to ensure that the driver is also assisted in making those split second decisions and and spotting all of these things and we um we you know we won't go into detail because we don't know all the stats but just anecdotally we know that there are a lot less serious train crashes now and that's got to be as a result of atp absolutely compared to and it was happening all the time it felt in the late 90s early noughties and the i think it's from about sort of 2002 onwards there's been very few crashes that have and i feel like only a small number of deaths across all of the crashes which obviously each one is still absolutely heartbreaking but i'm sure it's three or four since then which is a much more reassuring statistic there's there's fewer major train crashes and the ones that do happen um, tend to be less dramatic as this as well less everything strewn everywhere and on fire of course it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen but um, it also tends to just not just but it tends to be um, a driver accident as well like the driver does the wrong thing like you would find in any other scenario where a car driver accidentally reverses or puts the brake, you know, goes forward when they think they're in reverse or something like that. The signalling staff also had mixed messages about how they should respond to accidents. So the written instructions from their training was that as soon as they noticed a train had passed a signal at danger, they should set signals to danger and immediate radio emergency all stop signal to the driver of the train. On the 5th of October 1999, it was only when the train was 200 metres past the signal that they did start to send a radio emergency or stop signal, and they stated that their understanding was to wait and see if the driver stopped of their own accord before doing this. This interpretation was supported by their immediate manager. It's not even clear whether that signal, that emergency or stop, was actually sent before the crash, or if it actually kind of got sent at the same time as the crash, by which point Hodder had already seen and was already attempting to break, but could see the other train up ahead of him. So the signalman there that day had never been trained in the use of cab secure radio, so this is the system by which they had to notify the danger signal to the train driver, and none of them had ever used it in response to a SPAD. So they've got this thing, but they've interpreted the written instructions differently anyway, and they don't even know how to use it. It seems likely that Hodder had misread SN109 as yellow. Perhaps he'd also misread the signal before it, which had also pointed east. So he'd just accelerated through SN109 and continued driving for 700 metres, unaware of what he had done. Just seconds before the crash, as his route took him onto the main line, he would have seen the Great Western high-speed train bearing down at him a little over 80 miles an hour and at that moment he applied the emergency brake but it was hopeless. The fateful journey had taken a little bit under three and a half minutes. There was of course a public inquiry and this was led by Lord Cullen and the first day of hearings was scheduled to be on the 10th of May 2000. The inquiry concluded with Lord Cullen writing, I am satisfied that he believed he had a proceed aspect at SM109. It is more probable than not that the poor sighting of SN109, both in itself and in comparison with the other signals on and at Gantry 8, allied to the effect of bright sunlight at a low angle, were factors which led him to believe that he had a proceed aspect and so that it was appropriate for him to accelerate as he did after passing SN87. 
After the red aspect of SN109 ceased to be obstructed by the underside of the Portobello Bridge or the overhead line equipment, he could have seen it during a period of eight seconds as he approached that signal. But it appears that he either did not see it or did not realise that there was a red aspect. While it might be well expected that if he was concentrating on his duties, he would look again at the signal, this depended on his various tasks and the confidence with which he had already identified what he thought the signal was showing. The unusual configuration of SM109 and reverse L not only impaired initial sighting of its red aspect, but also might well have misled an inexperienced driver, such as driver Hodder, who was looking at the signal at close range, into thinking that it was not showing a red, but to proceed aspect. The fact that he had not been obstructed that SN109 was a multi-spad signal increased the risk of his making and not correcting a mistake as to the aspect shown by that signal. So I know that's really wordy, but I wanted to read the whole thing because I think it really does kind of absolve driver Hodder of any sort of worry that he'd done anything malicious or that he was... um, behaving in a in a manner that was just reckless i mean you know i don't think anybody's saying it, it's malicious it could, you know it could have been and these things do happen but yeah it's kind of saying that it wasn't reckless either it was just uh a combination of of things it's quite simple ultimately but he believed it to be a yellow signal and that he could proceed and so therefore he did and it's it's just heartbreaking isn't it <laughs> to to think of that this this chap had just started driving trains. He'd literally only just qualified. And three minutes into a journey, this happens. Yeah, it is. It's just, you just can't, you can't really wrap your head around it. How it, how it can happen in the first place, how previous warnings weren't heeded. And this is a human being and people will still blame him, even though he's been exonerated in the findings of, of the inquiry. I kind of get and I think people will still blame him to a certain extent and that tarnishes his memory doesn't it it really does it just yeah the whole thing is for both of these cases it's just um yeah just those momentary lapses of judgment or not quite grasping the situation or you know inexperienced and and then this is what happens so The inquiry laid out a number of recommendations. I'm not going to read them all. There were 89 recommendations with many of those having subcategories. So I did scroll through them and look at a number of these. And I would I would probably estimate that there are about 200 when you look at the categories and then the subcategories as well. These covered things like evacuation for passengers, for example, how trains should um, how train companies should ensure that passengers know what to do in that situation. The recommendation of Lord Cullen's inquiry into the crash led to the creation in 2003 of the Rail Safety and Standards Board and in 2005 of the Rail Accident Investigation Branch in addition to the Railway Inspectorate. So the Rail Safety and Standards Board's principal objective is to lead and facilitate the rail industry's work to achieve continuous improvement in the health and safety performance of the railways in Great Britain. And the Rail Accident Investigation Branch is a British government agency that independently investigates rail accidents in the United Kingdom and the Channel Tunnel in order to find a cause. So the Cullen Report recommended the establishment of an accident investigation body within the Department for Transport along the same lines as the Marine Accident Investigation Branch or the Air Accident Investigation Branch. So these bodies apparently have distinguished themselves 
by their professionalism and objectivity, which I thought was such a nice thing to hear about whatever you set up. But basically to, like you mentioned, the difference in a crash on a motorway, for example, and a train, to really ensure that these are being investigated by the right people who know about driving trains, who know about how trains work, who know more than just Joe Bloggs off the street who says, well, why did this happen? They already have that background. On the 5th of April 2004, Thames Trains was fined a record £2 million after admitting violations of health and safety law in connection with the crash and were ordered to pay £75,000 in legal costs. And on the 31st of October 2006, Network Rail, the successor body to Railtrack, formed in the wake of a subsequent train crash at Hatfield, pleaded guilty to charges under the Health and Safety at Work legislation. Um, So that was in relation to the accident and it was fined £4 million on the 30th of March 2007, ordered to pay £225,000 worth of legal costs. And I'm wondering, I mean, maybe through an insurance company, but I'm wondering whether the victims in both these crashes that we've talked about in parts one and two received any compensation. It's not something I looked into, I'm going to be completely honest. Um, I imagine that they would have done. I I assume that they would have done. I would hope that they did receive something, but it's not an element to this that I looked into, so I can't say for definite. So... With the ATP system, there was then also a lot of talk because this had been two train crashes along the same track where if ATP had been operational, neither of these, the two that we've talked about in these episodes, neither of these would have happened. As we mentioned in the first episode, the whole thing of setting up a system when it's not the law to have it operational. Even AWS wasn't the law. You didn't have to have AWS, but a lot more trains would have had that. But you could drive without it being operational. Um, And then they wanted to make it that that would be that you had to have it operational. Obviously, we talked about ensuring that that at least there was a fail safe of having another driver who was experienced. Um, The ATP... I mean, that was super, super expensive. And so then there was the new, there was a new system which was called TW, no, TPWS, which was Train Protection and Warning System. And I tried to look into sort of the history then, what's on our trains right now, what what is in use, because the TPWS does the same thing, but it, it basically... It only stops trains that pass red signals or speed restrictions at too high of a speed, but they do, it doesn't monitor the speed con- consistently. It's a lot cheaper, but it it still would protect. It would have saved both of these crashes. Um, so there was loads into that. ATP was really expensive, so then it was kind of um, phased out, and then this other thing was brought in. And I just really now, I can't find enough information about what's actually protecting us as we're driving along on our trains. So if any of our listeners are train drivers, I'd quite like to know what what does go on. Is there something nowadays? I think that it's like we said, there's got to be something because we see this a lot less than we used to. Yeah. And the ATP is, um, it's only on certain lines with those high-speed trains that are specific as well because that's the companies that that then put the money into it so there's definitely going to be things in place in all of the rails and all of the lines 
we don't see this happen as often because it's so much more um I don't know what the right word is like not protected but the the train drivers are more supported I suppose and they have a lot more to assist them yeah and technology moves on if you think these uh, crashes we're talking about happened 25 years plus ago and technology ha- will have moved on since then so you would hope that there are benefits to that of increased and improved safety yeah i did find sort of thing about that just it just describes it as train protection and there is the law that train operators must provide train protection to ensure spads do not happen um so that was what i could find so we know that there's something Two incredibly sad cases, though, and oh, I think it's all the, all the worst that they happened, you know, within, was it two years? Within two, two years, years on the same track. Yeah. Same, you know, different signals, but the same, the same line of track. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, everybody, and listening to the episodes this week. And we'll be back next week with another case for you. We'll see you then. See you then. <laughs>